Well, feels good in the house tonight. Amen, amen. I feel a faith around here tonight. Uh, if you can believe, anything's possible. If you can believe, you can get a miracle. If you can believe, you can have the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Man, amen, amen. Well, I owe this church an apology. We travel different churches and everyone starts service at a different time on Sunday evening. Some start at 5, others at 5.30, some at 6, 6.30, some at 7, some at 7.30. So we change churches and every revival to a different starting time. And I don't do, know why, but I had it in my mind that church started at 6.30 tonight. So I was late for prayer meeting. And I believe it's wrong to be late for prayer meeting. I thought, here, I've been up preaching to those people about coming to prayer meeting, and the preacher didn't do it. I don't think a preacher ought to tell anybody to do something he don't do himself. And if I tell you to, it's important to pray, then I want to set the example. If I encourage you all to worship, I need to lead the way in worship. And so please forgive me, and God being my helper, it won't happen again next Sunday. I'll come extra early to make up for it. Amen. I believe the Lord's going to do something in this service. Hallelujah. My, 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 my. If you have your Bibles, why don't we snatch them at this time and go to the book of Psalms. Psalm 34. going to preach long tonight. I don't feel anything profound. I want to take some simple concepts from the Word of the Lord. and I believe if we'll hear it, it'll kick somebody's faith in gear. And if somebody's faith can get geared up, then we'll see the Lord do a work in these altars in just a little bit. I know that people came to this service needing a touch from the Lord. People came here bound that need to get loosed and get free. Amen. Some of y'all hadn't got free this whole revival. And God wants you to get free tonight. Well, glory. Shake this house. Amen. Psalm 34. Verse number 15. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Not a good thought to think that God's looking at you. That'd be a scary thought too. If you're not living right. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry 
I want to preach for just a few minutes tonight about the cry of the righteous. The cry of the righteous. And everybody said in Jesus' name, shake a hand or two, tell him something good's happening around here, and you can be seen. want us to ponder a simple question tonight. question, though it is simple, I feel is very basic to our faith and what we do with our faith. The question is this, is does God hear and answer prayer or does He not? Some would say that God has a lot of power. That God can do anything, but He chooses not to use His power in this end time. Some would say that God is standing far back and is aloof from our individual lives and does not deal with man directly in today-to-day problems and situations that come our way. And yes, it's good to pray, but God really does not respond by answering or working miracles anymore. So some say that God does not hear or hear and answer prayers. But then I, some others would say that God does care. And that God is very near in the time of trouble. And that God cares about our hurts and our problems and our feelings and our family situations and so we must get it settled in our mind does he or does he not hear and answer prayer because until this very simple and basic question is settled in our spirit we'll never be able to pray effectively it's hard to seek the Lord if you're not settled in your heart as to whether or not he really hears or whether he does not hear and answer prayer. I want to suggest for our consideration that if God does not hear and answer prayer, then the preacher should focus all of his preaching towards teaching us to just accept and deal with our problems. The preacher should never get up and exhort us to pray for a change or pray for a deliverance. But the sermon should solely consist of trying to tell us to accept the sad realities that come along with life. That is, if God does not answer prayer. However, if our God does, and if it be true that His ears are open to the cry of the righteous I would exhort this congregation that we should come boldly into the throne room of grace where we can find mercy to help us in our time and hour of need. If He does answer prayer, then you can come and you can touch Him. I must consider that if He does not answer prayer, then we must yield to the temptations that the enemy brings our way. All of us are tempted on a regular basis. All of us feel the struggle as our flesh, the the lower, baser parts of our flesh, 
yearns for the things of this world and yearns for sinful things. And if God is far removed from man, and if God is not involved in our feelings and in our situations, then we just have to yield to temptation. There isn't any hope because we don't have the power in our own will to consistently stand against temptation when it comes. That is, if God does not answer prayer. But however, if our God does indeed hear the cry of the righteous, I want to tell somebody that's being tempted, somebody that the devil's hounding you to go down the wrong road, you need to cry out to the Lord. Because if you cry, He will provide a way to escape the temptation. If our God does indeed hear the cry of the righteous, He will put a power on the inside to stand in the day of temptation. Well, does He or does He not? That is the question. If our God does not, hear and answer prayer then the sinner has no hope if he does not hear and answer prayer we need to take the altar benches out of the front of this church if he does not hear and answer prayer I need to just say to the sinners that are here tonight make the best of the rest of your life that you can Because this is the best that you're ever going to have in this life. Just try to make the best of the misery of your sin. Because God will not hear your prayer. That's if He does not hear and answer prayer. But however, I want to say that if it be true that God really does hear the desperate cry from the soul, then every sinner in this house ought to find the spot on this altar in a few minutes and cry out to the Lord for Him to save your wretched soul from its sin. If it's true that God does hear the cry of the righteous, then I suggest that every member of this church ought to be in this altar crying out to the Lord for Him to deliver people from the bondage of their sin. If prayer is nothing more than an empty ritual, if there is no power in prayer, then I have to look at you all that have dysfunctional families, living in a society of dysfunctional homes. Those of you that come up in a home that perhaps the dad was an alcoholic, Perhaps the dad was a man who was not willing to work for a living. Was what the Bible says is worse than an infidel. Because he's not willing to work to make a living. Maybe you grew up in a home that, that was filled with cursing and violence and immorality. Well, well, the, 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 the common uh, philosophy is, is that children are going to promote and and propagate and carry on the failures of their mom and dad. 
The common mentality is is that that your dad was an alcoholic. There's a strong chance that that's what you'll become also. And we often see there is a cycle from one generation to the next. Sins and problems and severe dysfunctional situations are carried from parents to children to grandchildren. And if God does not hear those prayers, then you have no hope. But if it be true that God hears the cry of the righteous, I want to tell somebody that you're the only one here out of your family. I want to preach to a young man with a sinner mom and dad that the cycle can break with you. That it doesn't matter what the hang-ups of your family are been. It doesn't matter what the addictions are. It doesn't matter what hellish strongholds are in your home. It can break with you. Our God is still in the business of breaking the cycle of bondage that goes from generation to generation. I'm here to tell you you can stand up and God can break that cycle with you if you cry out to him does he hear and answer or does he not if God is far removed how dark and how lonely The day and the moment when an elderly person is diagnosed with a terminal illness and told they only have a few months left to live. How bleak the prognosis is if God is far removed. Where do you go for comfort? What do you do? But I want to tell you if the Bible be true. And if God does indeed hear the prayers. The scripture said that we have a God that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. All I want to make a statement tonight in the face of doubt, in the face of the devil, in the face of the critics and the scoffers to tell you that God is alive and well and He does indeed hear the prayer of the righteous. The Bible says, I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from my fears. This poor man cried and the Lord Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything in his name. He heareth us. I want to tell you, brother, if you need a miracle, all you got to do is cry out for
for it. If you need a touch from the Lord, all you've got to do is lift up your hands and lift up your voice because there is a God who has an ear poised to your cry. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Can I tell you the reason some of you have not gotten the breakthrough yet? It's because you haven't really cried out for it. The reason why some of you are carrying a heavy load is because you really haven't cried out to the Lord. The reason why some of us have backslid still to this day is because we haven't cried out to the Lord. But I'm here to try to pump your faith with the Word of God and telling you that you cry. If you'll cry, He will hear and He will move. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. I feel like having a prayer meeting. We don't put enough emphasis on our prayer meetings. I want to tell you, if you ever get a revelation of this simple thought I'm preaching, if we really believed and really understood that God is listening and He does care and He will move, it's not hard to pray when you've got that kind of confidence. Hallelujah. His ears are open to the cry of the righteous. Now, when you read through the Bible, we find that when Jesus was here on earth, He performed 36 miracles. One time He raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed blinded eyes, opened deaf ears, cast out devils, cleansed the lepers, and on and on he walked on the water. He, he stopped the storm. Time after time, we read about how God in His mercy moved in the distress and upon the trouble that the man was having. But what I find interesting is out of the 36 miracles, Recorded in the Bible that Jesus performed is that 21 of them took place because the one needing the miracle made the first effort to reach out to the Lord. I could almost tend to believe that 21 of these miracles would not have taken place had the person in need just sat back and refused to make their need known. 
What does that tell us? That tells us there's something in the heart of God that is moved when we come to Him in need and cry out for His help. Now I know there's lots of needs in this room tonight, but not every need's going to get met. God's not going to be moved for every need. In fact, my needs and your needs really don't touch the heart of God much at all. But you know what will really move Him is when you start caring enough and your faith gets strong enough that you move out of your seat and you get in a position of prayer and you start lifting your voice and crying out to God in brokenness. There's something about the cry of the righteous man. There's something about the cry of the soul that brings a swift response from His presence. Why don't we lift our hands right now and feel up to the Lord. You need the Holy Ghost. You need to cry out for the Lord in desperation. There's folks here that need to repent of their sins. You need to be burying your face on this altar. I want to ask you to get out of your seat and make your way to the front of this church. And bow your knee and start crying out to God in a desperation. There's others here that are afflicted in their body tonight. You're sick and you're not feeling well. I'm here to tell you, you can cry out to the Lord and He will heal you. The Lord will move and give you a miracle for your infirmities. There's people here with trouble in the home. And I want to encourage you to cry out to the Lord and ask Him to calm the troubled waters of your life. See, don't hold back. Somebody needs to let your faith go. Somebody needs to cry out to the Lord with a fresh hope and a fresh determination. These altars are open for anybody wanting to touch from the Lord. Anybody wanting to come cry out to the Lord, these altars are wide open. If you've got a need, just come on and cry out to the Lord. If you want a touch, come on and cry out for Him. You can touch Him if you cry out to Him. I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God through it all. Through it all. I've learned to depend upon His Word. Sing it again. Through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. I have learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I did learn to depend upon His word. God, praise God, praise God. Wave your hands to the Lord. Thank Him for all of His many benefits towards us. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God.
truly we have a God that can be leaned on and relied on through it all. Learn trust in Jesus. Depend on God. We've all been through a lot. We've all got stories that we could tell. All could tell about battles that we've been in. Show battle scars that we're still here. We've got the victory. We're going on because the Lord has kept us this far. And if He's kept us this far, He's going to bring us the rest of the way. Amen. I believe that. It's the confidence that I have in our great God. We see what the Lord's doing here in this church. I believe this church is on the right way, don't you? We're going in the right direction fact is we are going we're not just standing in the way we're going along the way so you stand in the way you get in the way God's church is a moving church a progressing church that's what revival's about that's what's been going on around here I want to compliment this church for the way that we made an effort to be here early through the week to pray Seek the Lord before these services. Cannot stress the importance of pre-service prayer. Because all of us, when we come to church, our mind is wandering a dozen different directions. And when we get to church early and spend time bowing our knee before the Lord and praying, what we're doing is uh, corralling all of those straight thoughts, bringing them into captivity like the Bible says getting our mind focused on the things of God, on spiritual levels, and when we get our mind put on spiritual things, then we can receive spiritual things. The carnal mind receives not the things of God, the Scripture said, but the spiritual mind can receive whatever God wants to say to it. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. John chapter 16. I want to also thank your pastor for giving me the liberty to preach in this pulpit. There are no strings attached to this sacred desk here. The man of God, the visiting minister here, is free to say what God gives him to say. And it wouldn't be that way if, if there was a pastor that was insecure and nervous about about preaching. You know when a pastor is is willing to turn a preacher loose in the pulpit, it's a good indication that he he wants the church to be pure and clean. The pastor's in the business of covering up sin, trying to appease sinful behavior just to try to keep people coming to church. And he gets all nervous when a preacher starts preaching against sin. But oh, thank God for leadership that says we want a godly church. We want our church to be a safe place that has the true blessing of God. And thank you for allowing me to preach. I'll tell you another thing that I, I appreciate about this good pastor is he has not one time in this entire meeting tried to steer me and tell me what to preach. Not only has he not told me what not to preach, but he's not told me how to preach either. He does not tell me about anybody's personal problems, 
situations that need to be preached about. He doesn't do that. So I'm allowed to come here as an ignorant man, knowing only about this church what the Holy Ghost deals with me about. And that's the way it should be, isn't it? I'll go so far as to say not only should the pastor not be filling my mind with the problems, although if he wanted to, it's fine for him to do so. There's no biblical uh, precedent for him not doing so, but the saints should not also go to the preacher or the evangelist's wife and mention problems and situations because we want to let the Holy Ghost be free to move how he wants to move, don't we? That way, if I start preaching something that uh, pertains to you or your life or family, we don't ever have to even wonder, has someone told him what to preach? Has someone been filling his ear full of my problems and my personal situations? And We don't do that around here. We don't plan on starting now. Amen. Well, I'm getting sidetracked. Let's read from the Word of the Lord. Gospel of John, chapter number 16. I'm going to read the words of Jesus in verses 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Isn't it wonderful that the Holy Ghost has been sent to us? Verse number 8. And when he, the Holy Ghost, is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Ghost is coming to our hearts and lives with a mission. And his mission is to reprove the world of sin righteousness and judgment another translation renders it this way says that when the Holy Ghost comes he will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment now, I'm going to preach for just a few minutes tonight about being convinced of sin righteousness and judgment convinced of sin righteousness and judgment and everybody said in Jesus name God bless you. You can be seated. Brothers and sisters, I want to love God's Word with all of my heart. I don't just want to believe it with my mind. I want to believe it with my heart. I want this Bible and the precepts of the law of God to get rooted down deep on the inside. I want the Scripture to control what I think. I want it to control my behavior. And I want to have a passion for it. And I want to believe with all of my heart that the Bible really is the inspired Word of God and it really is the book to live by. And I do believe that, don't you? You know, you'd be surprised how many folks believe what the Bible says in their mind but they don't really get it down in their heart you know it's possible for us to learn some scriptures and with our human intellect understand some of the things of God it's possible to understand intellectually 
the difference between right and wrong, and we can explain that, but really not feel that clear difference between right and wrong down in our gut, as it were. But I believe that one thing that the Holy Ghost does in our services, and when the Holy Ghost touches a man or woman's heart, He convinces them that the Word of God really is right. And the Holy Ghost has got a way of taking the truth of God's Word, that concept of right and wrong, and that faith that we have in our mind, and and driving it down deep into our heart. And I want to tell you, when the Lord puts it in your heart by revelation, it's going to be there for good. When God gives you a conviction, God gives you a belief, you're going to have that belief and nobody can talk you out of it. The devil can't talk you out of it. It's yours for good. See, I can talk you into believing the truth and and there's something to be said for that. But really, we don't need a preacher to talk us into believing the truth. We need the Holy Ghost to move while the preacher's preaching to all of a sudden God shows us and then we're convinced from the top of our head to the sole of our foot, that that message really is right. Jesus says, the Comforter's coming. The Holy Ghost is coming. And He's coming for this reason. He wants to convince the world of some things. The first thing the Holy Ghost wants to convince us of as a church is sin. Everybody say sin. God wants His people to understand how ugly and bad and rotten sin really is. Sin needs to appear sinful to God's people. We don't want to try to uh, sugarcoat sin or make sin seem acceptable or commendable. But we want to call it what it is. And as God's people, we need to take a strong stand against sinful things and sinful behavior. You've got to be convinced of the sinfulness of sin. My mind goes back tonight to the Garden of Eden. Now, y'all remember the story of creation. I'm sure we're so familiar with it, I hardly need to reference it. But when God created Adam, He created him by Himself without a wife. There's only one man made initially. And he puts Adam into a place that is called the Garden of Eden. Now the Garden of Eden was like a paradise. In this garden, the Bible said there was all manner of fruit trees. I don't know how many fruit trees was in the Garden of Eden, but there was a bunch of them. There was everything from apple trees to pear trees to banana trees and cherry trees and fig trees and, and well will you just just on and on and on and no doubt there were all kinds of other fruits there was strawberries and blueberries and blackberries and there's all these things for man to enjoy to eat from and the garden of eden was a beautiful place and the thing about this garden and the state of this first man that was most striking of all is that it was in a state of perfection. There was no such thing as sin or evil at that time. 
And when God put Adam in the garden, He said to him, He said, You're welcome to eat of any of these fruit trees that you want to, except for one. There is one tree in the middle of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, one rule that you have to live by is you are never to eat of that tree. And Adam, if you break my law and go ahead and eat of it anyway, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now think about how simple life would be in our society if there was only one law to live by. We wouldn't need a, a Congress anymore, would we? We wouldn't need a legislator. We wouldn't need policemen. We, we'd have a simple life if there was only one law to live by. But that's how it was in the garden. Well, I don't know how long Adam lived all by himself. It might have been a few days, a few hours. It might have been a few years. We don't know. The Bible don't say. But God looks down at Adam one day and He says, You know, I did a good job making that fellow, but he's not good enough all by himself. There's something missing. It just ain't good for man to dwell alone. Now, that's a good reason why everybody needs to be married right there. Here, Adam was in paradise all by himself, and God said, you still ain't in good enough shape by yourself. In the middle of paradise, you still need a wife. Paradise is no substitute for a wife. Amen. And so we know the story. God makes Adam fall asleep. Adam goes to sleep having no idea what he's about to get in for. And he's sleeping. God takes a rib out of his side and takes this rib. And somehow or another he makes a woman. And after a while, he breathes life into the woman. She's a living human being. And then he brings Adam out of his deep sleep. Now, I'd like to bear a fly on the trunk of a tree. When Adam opened up his eyes and sits up with a start, and he's looking into the eyes of another person. He had never seen a person before. He's the only person that's ever been made. And he looks, and here is the most elegant, specimen of life that God has ever made. And Adam, and you'll just have to excuse me for being crude and let my mind wonder, but my mind does wonder about these things. How did Adam introduce himself to his wife? God made him with the ability to speak, so he had to introduce himself. Maybe he patted himself on the chest and said, Me, Adam! And at this point, she didn't have an e, a name, so she couldn't be introduced to him, so he had the namer. Me, Adam, and you, Eve, the mother of all living. And so they start talking to each other. And Eve doesn't know anything. Not because she's a woman, 
but because she's just been made. She don't know nothing. Adam's the one that's got all the knowledge and experience in life. And here this woman just a few minutes old, so it's Adam's responsibility to teach his new wife everything that he has learned about the garden. And so I can see him as he takes his wife by the hand and they began to tour through the garden. As they walk along, they come to a tree and, and there's these long, skinny, yellow things hanging from the tree and Eve just stops and looks and Adam, he points at the tree and he explains that this is a banana. And they're good to eat, Eve. You pick them like this and you see you you, you break the stem at the top and peel the yellow off and the white part inside's good to eat. And it goes through and he's naming the different kinds of trees and flowers. And keep in mind that the Bible says that Adam had been the one to name all the animals in the garden. And he gave the animals names before Eve was created. So he had to teach Eve what the animals were called. And they're walking through the garden, all of a sudden a deer bursts out of some of the foliage and it bounds off behind another bush or two. And Eve just, she opens her mouth in amazement. She's never seen anything like this yet. So Adam just stops. He said, Eve, what you just saw was a deer. Those deer are so beautiful. They can just glide through the forest. And he stops and he tells about the deer. And after a while they, they see a bird over in the bush. And he tells her what this bird is. And then... Then they hear, hear a sound of another bird and he explains that that's a crow uh, making his call and, and he's just demonstrating all the animals. And Then they wade over a little burbling brook and as they do there's a flash of silver as a trout uh, dodges out from beneath a rock and finds shelter in another rock and Adam stops and he explains to Eve about the fish that are in the stream. Two are in the garden teaching his wife what he knows. And all of a sudden, they step into a clearing in the center of paradise. And as they step into that clearing, the woman draws her breath in amazement as she beholds what was the most beautiful tree of God's creation. She stands there mesmerized by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of forbidden fruit. And as she stands there and looks, all of a sudden there is a soberness. There is an intensity. There is a seriousness that comes over Adam that he has not ever felt up to this point in life. And Adam looks at how his wife is looking at the tree of forbidden fruit. And he turns to her and he begins to speak. And he says to her, Eve, there's something I've got to tell you about that tree. Eve, God made all these trees. But when God made the trees, He told me personally that we're to never, ever, under any circumstance, 
eat of that tree. Furthermore, not only are we not going to eat of it, but we're not even going to touch it. Because Eve, God said in the day we eat of it, we shall surely die. It was up to Adam somehow convince Eve of the sinfulness of sin. To convince Eve how serious it was to break God's commandment. Time goes by. We don't know how long they lived in the garden. Again, the Bible don't say. It might have been a month. It might have been several hundred years. One day, Eve is walking through that clearing and leaning up against the tree the old devil. And the devil starts speaking to Eve. And he say, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the fruit of this tree. And Eve looks at it and put in my word, she said, Hey, devil, I know that we're not supposed to eat of that tree and you ain't going to get me to eat it or touch it. Because God said, if I do it, I will die, and I don't want to die. And you know what the devil said to Eve? In trying to tell her it was okay to do what God forbid, he said to her, you shall not surely die. God said, if you break my law, you'll die. But the devil saying, go ahead and break God's law, and it won't hurt one bit. I've preached this long, long introduction. Tell us that's where we're at in our society right now. God's Word has a strong standard of right and wrong. And brothers, sin is simply breaking God's law and God's commandment. And you know what the devil's trying to do through the medium of society and media and education nowadays? He's trying to convince the masses that there's nothing wrong with doing what God forbid and that there is no penalty for sin. But I pray to God that something would happen in each one of our hearts where we could get a realization if God said don't do it, it doesn't matter what society says, it doesn't matter what the college professor says, it doesn't matter because the Bible is still right and sin is still wrong in the eyes of God. One one example how we see the devil trying to tell us it's okay to do what God said don't do is in the whole the whole subject of homosexuality now the Bible teaches that that it is a sin not just a sin but it is an abomination for a man to have relationships with a man as the homosexuals do homosexuality lesbianism it is a horrible sin from the word of God it's not just a sin but 
According to the Bible, it's one of the worst sins that a human being can possibly commit. Old Testament and New, it is forbidden by God. Not a gray area. No room for question in the Word of God. It's wrong, 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 wrong. Now, just a hundred years ago, in this country, if a man was, if he was fruity, and uh, and he had a he had an inclination of a boy had this little tendency like other little boys, he didn't want nobody else to know about it. Because if uh, you liked other boys and word got out, someone love will come work your motor over and help you get a different perspective. And it, it just wasn't kosher to be homo years ago in this country. Our, they, they, they were that, they've always been around, but society frowned on it. It was considered abnormal and sinful and disgusting and and it was weird and, and it was something that was kept uh, behind closed doors and guarded and shrouded in the utmost secrecy. But in the last 20 years in our country, there has been a dramatic shift in the way people view what the Bible says is sin. Now, homosexuality is no longer a stigma. We have lived in just our generation, my generation's lifetime, to see the place where people are not embarrassed about being involved in that sin. Now they don't want to keep it behind closed doors, but they want to bring it out open onto the street. They want to be able to walk in the mall. My wife and I seen a couple of those fruity nuts the other day in the mall holding hands with each other they want to parade it in front of us no shame and no secrecy and now you know what they're saying they're saying this is not a sinful thing at all and now they're teaching in our schools that people are homosexual some of them because they were born that way it was in their genes and they cannot help feeling attracted to a member of the opposite sex. And surely we should not discriminate against them if they were born this way. We need to love them. We need to, we need to have tolerance towards the homosexual community. And here, while back they weren't content just to indulge in their sin, but now they want to get married. And our court systems, they're wanting to do it right here in the state of Louisiana. And they're wanting to be labeled just as normal as a traditional husband and wife union. And when someone speaks out against it, they are labeled as hate mongers and when we stand up and say that homosexuality is abnormal and sinful, people look and say, you are intolerant. The greatest compliment anybody here can ever get is someone calling you intolerant. You people are just you're discriminating. You're, not, you're, you're hateful people. You're prejudiced. 
We're, we're just believing what people have always believed that feared God. We're not the ones that change, brother. It's society that has changed. And now we've got churches, churches that are ordaining homosexual priests, homosexual priests, preachers to stand in the pulpit and saying there's nothing wrong with it anymore. While back on the radio I heard one of these modern day preachers, he was trying to explain away the scriptures that teach against homosexuality. And you know what he said? He said, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote against it, and he was well-meaning. But you see, back in Paul's time, they just had not been enlightened about human sexuality. There was a lot of things they didn't understand. They didn't understand that it was in their genetics, and they can't help that way. He said if Paul had really understood and he knew what we knew today, he would not have condemned it. And so they were actually saying God Himself has placed His stamp of approval on this wicked, perverse lifestyle. Now, some of you are looking at me saying, why in the world are you preaching this, Brother Adams? This is an apostolic church. And we're never going to believe in it around here. But can I say this respectfully? I'm not worried about the gray hair here. Because you got it in your heart and you ain't never going to change. And I don't ever worry about you. But I'm looking at some people my own age. Right now we are grown up and for the last several years... This world has tried to compress our minds into its mold. Every young man and woman that's growing up in this society is going to grow up in a world that says it's okay. When the Bible says it's not okay. If there's ever been a time for God's church to be convinced that sin is still sin. It needs that happen now. I'm telling you brothers, take it from a young man. There's no such thing as someone born a homosexual. God never, God never made somebody. It's a filthy choice that they made and it's still sinful and a homosexual will go straight to hell and he will burn and burn forever and ever. That's what the book said. We gotta be convinced. Gotta be convinced. See, a lot of times society says, just like the devil said to you, you know, you ain't going to die. Come on in. Go right in. It ain't going to make much difference. You want to do it, you do what you want to do. Telling you, brothers and sisters, I want to be afraid of sin. I hope that I never get so deceived that I could think that I could break God's law 
and there not be any consequences to it. Amen. I've got to hurry. I've got to hurry. I've See, society's got a way of changing the way we think about what the Bible teaches are right and wrong. And after a while, society's voice becomes more powerful than the voice from the pages of Scripture. And if we're not convinced that the Bible is right, then we're going to find ourselves following society instead of the Word of God. Now, I'll just, I'll just hurry and point out another example of how, how this has happened. It's in the subject of cross-dressing. Now, once again, a hundred years ago, in this society, the traditional man's apparel was a man wore masculine clothes and he, he would wear pants. And a woman would always wear a dress or a skirt. That was just people made that distinction. I, I wonder, I just wonder what the reaction would be tomorrow night if all y'all got here from church and Brother Townley and I were not in prayer meeting. Come 7.30 time to start service, what would you think if me and your pastor would walk out the doors of that office? And he was dressed up in a long dress, a frilly, lacy dress. I come out behind him wearing a skirt and our big white hairy legs gleaming out. What kind of... You know what happened? It would get deathly quiet. Few people would snicker. Then there would be a whisper, and after a while, there would be an outright resistance from this God-fearing congregation. It just wouldn't seem natural for a man, and especially a Christian man, to come in here wearing a skirt or a dress. I suppose maybe you run into me at Walmart round your cart around the corner and there I'm standing my cart and I'm, I'm wearing one of my wife's dresses. Man, everybody in the place is going to be looking. And you sure ain't going to want to invite nobody to come to church and hear that preacher that's having some problems. But you better not dare Say something to me if I choose to wear a dress. Suppose I were standing in here right now wearing one. How many of y'all would be offended if I was preaching wearing a skirt right now? Would that bother anybody? Some of y'all, I guess, may wouldn't bother you to see hear me come. That would bother a lot of them. And you know what I'd do? I'd stand here kind of cocky-like. And I'd say, what in the world is wrong with me choosing to wear a skirt or a dress? That's what I'm comfortable with. You'd say, well, it just, it just ain't right. 
Well, how come it ain't right? Well, just it, it, it just ain't. Men, men, men aren't supposed to wear dresses. Well, why not? Can't you understand? This is a masculine dress. It was made with a man in mind. It's not immodest. It's plenty long enough. What in the world's wrong with it? And you know what you do? You go get your Bible. And you get your concordance because you know that somewhere in the Bible there's a scripture that talks about men not wearing dresses. And you look in that Bible and you finally get back to Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse number 5. And you'd come marching up to me to show me what it said. And the Bible says a man shall not wear that which pertains to a woman. The Bible teaches against men dressing in women's clothes, or not just women's clothes, but clothes that look like women's clothes. It's against what the Bible teaches. But I'm telling you, the Bible don't stop there. The same scripture that says a man shall not wear that which pertains to a woman also says a woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man. I suggest for our consideration that it is just as sinful for a woman to pull on a pair of pants as would be for me or your pastor to wear a skirt or a dress. Somebody says, now wait a minute, Brother Adams. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. Well, that's fine. But let me ask you why you don't believe it. Do you not believe it because it's not in the Bible? Well, obviously not. I'll tell you why we don't believe that. It's because our society has changed so much in just the last hundred years to where now good, decent women everywhere wear pants. It's an accepted custom. It's part of our culture. And we don't, we, we don't, we don't even look twice to go out in our culture and see women wearing pants. It's the acceptable thing. Matter of fact, more of them wear pants now than wear skirts or dresses. But I have to ask this the question, who changed? Was it the Bible that changed or was it society that changed? The Bible said it should not be done. But society bought into Satan's lie when he said, go ahead and do it. It won't make any difference. But I'm here to encourage this church again. We have to take our cues how to dress, not from society, not from Cosmopolitan magazine, not from Gentleman's Quarterly, but we still must live by the Word of God. We must be convinced that sin is still sin according to God's Word. Oh, let's clap our hands and receive the word of the Lord together. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Convinced of sin. 
events of judgment. And my, I've, I've gotten all sidetracked tonight. I'll just, I can preach on another hour in that scripture. But we've got to believe it in our heart. We've got to be convinced of judgment. You know, some, some don't like to think about hell. But you know what? The same Bible that teaches there's heaven teaches there is a hell. And if people die without the Holy Ghost, they go to hell. Hell is a reality. I've said it before, and I know it's a morbid thought, but I wish that every one of us, God would let us stand for just 60 seconds in hell. I wish that just one time we could feel how hot the fire is going to be in hell. I wish the Lord would just open up our ears to hear the tortured screams that are echoing and roaring in the caverns of hell right now. We could just experience the lonely, the, the, the total absence of mercy that's in hell. You know what? We come back from one minute in hell and we would live for God with a seriousness. We would treat sinful things with a seriousness. I want to tell you, we cannot be casual and sloppy. We cannot treat sinful things that the Bible teaches again.